Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you Um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. So all the tingle. Yeah, this is so difficult to focus on because you read the history of Fleetwood Mac and there's just so many people involved. It's like reading, trying to learn the history of Coronation Street. <laughs> it's true, they're like... Pete Frame's absolute dream band. He could have had his whole career just doing Fleetwood Mac. You would have needed a whole wall of a gallery, though, just to do Fleetwood Mac family tree in, wouldn't you? And then, in the middle of all that, there's another Fleetwood Mac. That's right. That's I want to talk about that if we get to it. That's what that, that I, I know. So you're going along like, wait a minute, where did you come from? I mean, I just, I just, I just love the, the the members that have come and gone. You know, it is it is like EastEnders. Instead of saying "get out of my pub," it's like "get out of my band," isn't it? <laughs> oh well. Anyway, listen. There's no time to waste. Should, should we get it? We get him on. Get him on. Uh, welcome to Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's, it's get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. <laughs> hey! At last. How are you? We're good. I'm just... Uh... I'm nearly my glasses so I can see all your beautiful, handsome faces. You're looking beautiful there, man. Yeah, you look amazing, Mick. You look fantastic. Well, it comes under the heading, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) But thank you for doing this. Oh, brilliant. John has got one island in Hawaii. No, he used to live, McVie, you mean, right? Yes, yes. He he lived here on Maui for, for years and then went to Honolulu and lived there. And about, probably longer than I realized, Probably about nearly five years ago, he moved back to LA. So I'm uh, the only Islander. Stevie has a home uh, here on Maui, uh, but she's not often here. 
But you grew up in a sort of peripatetic way, didn't you? You were travelling around a lot? Yeah, Dad in the Air Force. So I found that the uh, correct vocation, travelling around in a rock and roll band instead of the army. <laughs> Talking of which, Mick, I did, because um, you know I know Amelia, um, I did actually once have the most delightful lunch and afternoon with your mum, Biddy, at her oh, house in Salisbury. Fantastic. Yeah. Mum has been very present at the moment, and, and she had a, a favourite phrase which ties in with your travelling comment about me young when we just travelled and followed Dad around all over the world, really. And she has this phrase, Biddy, Biddy Fleetwood, pack and follow. She was packing and following. And any complaint from, you know, not really us bunch, because we, we were so used to pack and following, but anyone who would be like semi-disturbed of, you know, there's traveling and this, and mom would go, oh, nonsense, pick yourself up, stop complaining, pack and follow. <laughs> well, I do remember at the house, in pride of place, for some reason, this always stayed with us, a long time ago now, is that she had, this, she had this framed photo of you and John, and you look like you're both wearing sort of dirty old raincoats, and you're carrying all of your platinum records, and you're very oh, furtively yes. going into a pawnbroker's on Hollywood Boulevard. Well, that's how we all end up, you know. Exactly. Spent all of my money about 20,000 times. But we, we formed, <laughs> me and John, I managed, well, John sort of didn't, but I, I did, for, uh, for better or for worse, which turned out pretty well. I managed Fleetwood Mac for about 14 years during the heyday uh, until I got too crazy and sort of retired myself out of that line of business. And one of the things we, we formed, because... Artists are always used to getting rooked and crooked and ripped off and never getting paid, especially especially back in the day. And I think yeah. probably still happens to uh, to some extent. But you hear those awful stories, you know, the Tamla Motown and mm. people that just, they never got paid. They were like slave trade. It was awful. So we formed a, a company was called CD Management. <laughs> CD. <laughs> Yeah, very seedy. <laughs> that was the, uh, we're selling off all their goods down the, the pawn shop downtown. <laughs> I remember like uh, posing for a picture, the whole band, we, we superimposed me and John with the band on a photograph just of me and John being the management company, having them all sign their, their lives away to seedy <laughs> management. Smart management. While we're on your family and family connections with us, I worked with your sister Susan in the in the Craze movie. Wow! I played Ronnie, and she played my aunt Rose in that. I mean, she was amazing. I mean, I, you know, I thought her performance in that was extraordinary. There's a she has, and sadly as well, she has a a deathbed scene in that which she played out in the most extraordinary fashion, and. Um, she was wonderful because I was an, a new boy to the profession, really. And, uh, you know, these were great old theatre actors that I was surrounded by. And, and Susan was so supportive. No, it, it's so pregnant the way uh, our conversations already started. Because Susan, along with Biddy, my, my nephew Kells is, is visiting me. And he, mum and dad, in, in many, he was very, very close to, to and he's like, still the guy who who says you need to phone up you know a cousin you need to come on Mick, do it and he's here with me and i love him very very much and of course susan was a huge part just recently of our conversations and he sent me i was with him yesterday and he's spending a couple of weeks with me 
And he sent me an incredible, uh, I suppose, dialogue, written dialogue by Sir Anthony Hopkins. And this just this morning, I was reading it to my girlfriend and, and I read her the whole thing because it, it, it's just very revealing fr- from his history. And of course, then I segue, he went to RADA with Susan and I was just talking about it, not even an hour ago. Wow. Uh, and, and also uh, the other night, uh, she's never seen The Sexy Beast. The, 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 I, the film is beyond fantastic. I hadn't seen it in a while. And of course, that led to a conversation, no kidding, of the characters and where they came from. And of course, all about the Cray twins. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then she did that film, which I think was the last, uh, very, I'm not good with names, but the uh, very famous Russian director called The Sacrifice, which was a, a film she made. Right. Of course, the, the craze uh, I knew all about. But all of this has just been literally fresh, freshly spoken about. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, I, I totally get your... your. And she died so uh, young. Yeah. I mean, um, that was what I was surprised when I saw today, how young she was. I mean, sort of the same age as Helen McCrory has just left us as well. Yeah. No, I know. Just just so, so before, uh, not a timely going away, for sure. But it, it, it also reminded me talking about this morning when you, you said, you know, a type of, of reverence for, for Susan was a very, very fine actor, actress, uh, as you know. And, and an agent, she went, to, of course, spent many uh, years with the, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she was up at Stratford. And again, I'm not remembering his name, but there was a young chap that used to hang around the green door after performances, pretending to be an agent. That was Gary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Pretending to be an agent and said, would you let me, would you let me, would you let me? It, if really, I think for, for a couple of years, some, a long, fairly long period. And she obviously knew that, that he adored her work and so forth. And one time, literally coming out of the theatre at Stratford, she said, you're on, you're going to be my agent, relax. <laughs> And he's one of the biggest agents in the world. He, he's handled Sir Anthony Hopkins amongst many, many others. And I saw and went to see him after, you know, after we lost Susan. And that Sir Anthony, about a week before, was talking about his work with Susan and how he literally listed her as pretty much the real deal, one that he would always remember. Uh, as being a, such a fine actor. It was just lovely to hear that. You know, Mick, there's so much to talk about with your band. I mean, it's, we were just saying, Guy and I, how extraordinary this history is. Well, the interesting thing, Mick, is that <clears throat> there's, there tend to be two types of musicians, right? There are people who kind of get in a band, align themselves with the band, and that's what they want to do. They want to be in a band forever. And then there's people who just want to go and work with lots of different people and be journeymen musicians. You've managed to do both. You've played with hundreds and hundreds of different musicians while staying in the same band the whole time. I mean, this is the truth, Guy. If you just had Fleetwood Mac records in your album collection, if that's all you were allowed, you would have quite a lot of genres. I don't know how, really, how much I've, maybe I've done more than I realised in terms of playing with other people. I've, no, but I, I feel... mean, just within the band, you know. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, there's a little sub, <laughs> sub-band and, 
going to Africa. And I said, yeah, you've reminded me of, of bits and pieces. Well, part of that, I think, is really uh, part of an answer where people go, like, me and John have been in Fleetwood Mac since the beginning. And in a slightly quippy, humorous way, you go, well, why is that? How is that? And I, I think it's really the one of the benefits of being in, in quote, not in the front line, be, being in a rhythm section and and yet being, you know, hopefully pretty useful intrinsically in terms of keeping everything together. And I don't mind saying that because I've learned to say it's okay. <clears throat> what did you what did you really what did you really do complete with Matt? Well, uh, I didn't write all the songs, but the band became my song, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a nice way of putting it. And and I, I think that's it. And it also it also allows you to do things more readily, probably, uh, and be more open, just because, you know, a drummer, a rhythm section needs people to play with, you know, so that becomes an easier thing to do, uh, I would think, proportionately. Never any master plan to it, I just sort of wandered into it and uh, like to keep playing when we're down, our downtime for me, would be probably, you know, who, who knows? I don't really know. I'm making it up off the top of my head, but I... Please do. I never, I never had the faculty for whatever reason, although I'm starting to now, which is great and fun, even if it's terrible. I like enjoy writing little vignettes and things um, and having fun learning ukulele and all one chord, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it really kept me busy where when we were down from playing, everyone else maybe was just more sensible. John would go sailing and I was always looking like a mother hen as to what do I do? You know, I, I'm not sitting in the front living room uh, playing guitar, playing piano, writing poetry like Stevie. I just wasn't that person. So when I, I think I just decided, well, then I just keep playing, you know, Right. And uh, and wait for the call, or rather, make the call and gather the troops around, and then we off we go again. So that that probably is part of it. Because well, you clearly have great organisational skills as well. If you're managing the band, and by the way, I must say because the the Peter Green Memorial, um, which I was at, was mind blowing, and that's incredible for just getting all those people. Yeah, I had brown underpants on that day. <laughs> 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 the uh, that, that was a dream come true. Sadly, we lost Peter mm. uh, before this all, this was supposed to come out a year ago. And now, now it's out and we're actually <laughs> super gratified. Glenn Johns, who produced the, the, the whole thing with me and was a huge help, texted me and said, how about that? My son, uh, Nathan, I think his name is, uh, my son has a number one album in England and I have a number three album, which is the album you're talking about, which is super gratifying. Wow. But, but the album uh, is, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to hang in there for that long. But knowing you have in England, especially because that's what the whole pathos of the whole thing was about. We're sitting there with a, a hit album as of the moment with a very non, you know, like the, how, how would that be? You know, it's sort of like, off the wall that it would even really get listened to, but it, it has been, and it turned out to be a, a hugely gratifying. I don't know if you already saw the show, yeah. but uh, there's a documentary still to come out, the making of, and of course we rehearsed here in Hawaii and 
And then yeah, Dave Bronze was very happy about that. I remember him telling me. Yeah, <laughs> I was very jealous. Yeah, well, I, I was I was very happy to have him and uh, Andy Fairweather Low, who who came. Uh, I didn't know them terribly well, but but Glyn did, Glyn Johns, and I was hugely grateful for that as a choice for the core band. Mm-hmm. They were incredible, are incredible, and we had the greatest time. Then we all went off to London and did that one night, and then the world closed down. That's right, Literally. yeah. Yeah, it's the last I thing I went to, yeah. Yeah, uh, I was thinking of a, a longer rehearsal, and we just didn't, thankfully we didn't do it, because uh, had this sort of crept into another week of rehearsal and then the show would have been allocated to be a little later, it simply wouldn't have happened. And was the plan to take it to America or...? Well, uh, there are always funny plans. I mean, I, I once having done it uh, and this was going to come out and now, now it is out and we're doing our best to, to find ways to promote it, but I, I most certainly would have taken that core band with Johnny Lang and... Uh, and the guys and, and the band you saw, uh, and then with the hope in England to go and play some blues fest- festivals and stuff, maybe with a couple of the heavy hitters coming in to do it. And or uh, the idea for me was to take that core band and actually replicate, you know, there's some great players all over the world. If you go to Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. that are in the genre of being able to deliver some really cool renditions of those songs. And that was a loose idea. But in England, I was really hoping to, to get, you know, a couple and re, you know, go to Glastonbury or something and have, have the likes of the one or two special lads turn up. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it, it was be- the cast list was absurd. But can I just say the, the what knocked me out on the night totally blew my mind, which that's something I wasn't expecting to see um, and I never thought I would see was Jeremy Spencer who played unbelievably as well. He did. He was the uh, secret. David, David, David Gilmore said to me, he said, mate, that was nothing. You should have seen the sound check. Just didn't, didn't Jeremy, sorry, <laughs> d- Jeremy left the band and became a child of God at one point, didn't he? Correct. Yeah. Liz, I think. He literally just went out for a magazine. Not, not with the children of oh, God. Right, but okay. Yes. But hey, he, yeah, because this is a thing, uh, Mick, sorry, I'm terribly sorry to screw it up, but it, it's because this story is so well told that he went out for a magazine and never came out. Where were you? When he went out for a magazine, were you on tour? Were you at home? Yeah, I, I always used to. <laughs> me and Jeremy were the, the, the deadly twins. Where, you know, one you know, big tall creature, and, the, and he's about five foot nothing. So uh, we were the eternal annoying comedy team. So we roomed together because no one could put up with us. We were always <laughs> total endless pranks, and I was the stooge because Jeremy's incredibly funny. And um, if you remember some of the old performances were pretty radical, I'll leave it at that. The Sex Pistols had nothing on us. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, he did. He, he went out. Uh, we'd been in San Francisco, and we'd been San Franciscaned with uh, <laughs> some hallucinogenics and stuff. <laughs> and he, he was always very uh, quietly, very focused on his belief system. And... He was very affected and oversensitive, I'm sure, but that was all natural, naturally a part of his psyche anyhow. And when we land, I remember sitting next to him on the plane coming in on 727, and Jeremy looked out. It was just after the earthquakes had happened in L.A., which for him was a sign that 
it's the beginning of the end. You know, yeah. And he turned around and said, I don't want to be here. And we were landing. They're going to go and play at the Whiskey uh, Go-Go on Sunset Boulevard. We checked into a little <clears throat> smutty hotel up on off Hollywood Boulevard. And he went down to uh, one of those sort of heady bookshops. He always liked to go out and find the prints and, and uh, books, like yeah. funny books. And he never came back. They took him off the street and he disappeared. And we were all very alarmed that, um, we eventually found him, uh, and he was—he he at that point had had uh, decided to to give it all up uh, without any conversation, which was very confusing for us. And that that was his exit. Yeah, I stayed in touch with him uh, through the years. Uh, in fact, very much on and off. We were touring in Japan, and they they travelled all, all over the world. You know, with his uh, oh, team. Wow. Yeah, and he would turn up in funny places and. Uh, you know, for a while it was really, I just chose to take it uh, as Jeremy and um, I let it be known. And he was always cool and try to sort of pull me into his belief system at the point. And he's uh, very happy, very focused and uh, lives a very quiet life. So that performance was something that I had to really persuade him to do. Uh, I really wanted him to be there. I mean, did you know he still played even, you know, did you? Well, exactly. And and he said, I don't know whether I can, I, uh, you know, because to him it was a big deal. He still plays and makes great funny little records and stuff. But um, but he's Jeremy. And as, it's funny how you that make you've been drawn a few times to characters that wear their art on their sleeve and but live on that fine line of tipping into the abyss, you know, with, with, with obviously with Peter, you know, um, with P Peter Green and, and Jeremy and, and also Danny Cohen. Yeah, so to have one in a band is kind of understandable and sort of stand back then, but three. But there's yeah. something to be said about those characters. They're deep yeah. into their performance. Well, they are, I mean, I specifically with, with Peter uh, and, and, and indeed uh, other elements that you're talking about, but these really... Because they were all incredible. I, I consider myself highly tuned and sensitive, uh, overly so, and a, and a sort of sloppy date, but uh, maybe I got lucky. They were in a world that was became uncomfortable for them. And then the advent, especially with Peter, and he's openly has spoken about it, of course, he's the last person on earth that needed to be experimenting with psychedelics or, or, or being stoned in any any way and you go well why is that because he's already there he was already that sensitive yeah. he was already be beautiful and and connected and therefore his story which is really why well i i would say everybody on that stage was there for their own reasons and about the music but it was it was also about the magic of who this person was you know and and what he left behind uh, outside of his playing, because he he was that powerful, and yet it freaked him out. You know, when you have that type of presence, when you and everything you can tell about what he's done, what he did was to belay that, was to play. He, let's face it, he called the band Fleetwood Mac. He could have been the gunslinger that, mm. that came in, and and we yeah. would have willingly <laughs> willingly been there. He he 
Yeah, well, or, or he was one of the, the gunslingers. But wasn't because I heard this, there, there was one of many stories of, of the name was that uh, he said to Jeremy or, or someone that that obviously he said, well, obviously, I'm going to go off and have a solo career. You can go off and have a solo career. You know, John and Mick, what have they yeah. got? Give them the name of the band so they can at least carry on. Well, Which it wasn't. Not, sorry. Not, no, no it's quite like that. But it, well, a bit well, almost. And. and when, when we put the band together, which was, you know, was ostensibly for sure, Peter said, well, I'm going <laughs> to... So they're basically forcing me to form a band. Uh, I don't really want to do it. I want to go off to Africa like Brian Jones and hang out in the mountains. Right. Which is what Eric did. And then all that stuff, you know, another Ginger, story. Yeah. Uh, he, re he just wanted the name of the band to be Fleetwood Mac. And he said, well, let it was an instrumental we did that John Mayle gave him a birthday present some studio time with Gus Dudgeon when he worked at Decca Records before oh. the Paul Elton John thing, right, right. Uh, coincidentally. And I remember the session. It was just me, John, and Peter. And we played on three, three tracks. One of them was an instrumental called Fleetwood Mac. But right then, uh, they said, well, what are you going to call it? And he said, well, call it Fleetwood Mac because John and Mick are in here. And it was just a rough thing to put on the tape box. And that's how the name came about. Years later, I mean, and or he was furious. The first, and I don't blame them. Mike Vernon had the first album said Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, and he said, "No, no, 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 that's never going to happen." And I don't blame them because Peter Green was the only thing that we had, you know, coming out of John Mayle and Peter Green is God and Eric Clapton's crap and all the stuff that used to <laughs> still, still. <laughs> all this stuff you know spray painted over the underground yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you know before that of course it was eric and, and and all this stuff was going on so when when we formed uh, uh and put the album out mike vernon in against seemingly his better judgment but i don't blame him it called it peter green's fleet with matt and peter was furious it was too late they were all printed up and ever since then, it became... And then years later, the story uh, along Shaggy Dog, I know I go around in circles, but years later, he had done an article, and I, I, maybe it was with Jeremy, I don't know, a long, 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 long time after the fact. And they were saying, well, how come the band's called Click With Matt? And that's when he said, which when I heard it, I was, I was not only incredibly moved, but it just it's a good story as to say how unselfish... Peter was. Yeah. Uh, and not only with his playing, when he welcomed Danny Cohen in, he welcomed Jeremy in right at the beginning. He could have been, like you said, uh, a creature that was in control of the whole thing very easily. And and he said, well, one thing I, I just knew, and that I thought, I didn't know it at the time at all. He said, well, I just always thought that maybe I'd be moving on and I wanted Mick and John to have, have a band. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. 
AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. And boy, did you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your your vision all along is what's... I'm kind of... I don't want to skip completely over what what got you to become a drummer in the first place. I mean, you know, because there aren't many leaders of the band out there. It's kind of an old-fashioned thing where the jazz drummer is the leader of the band, isn't it? But not in rock music. The big logo on the front of the kit. Yeah. But who are, who are your heroes? Who did you want to be? Uh, my, my early heroes w- would be like Sandy Nelson, uh, oh. who did like Let There Be Drums. And then I, I followed like a hawk at uh, The Shadows, and that was Tony Meehan. Much later on, when I went to London, I started listening to to B.B. King, and uh, that's the king of the shuffle. Uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, Sonny Freeman, uh, who played at uh, on that fantastic live at the Regal, with, which is just a s- stellar album with BB, mm-hmm. and that that was really about it. I just I started banging furniture when I was about I don't know six. Mum used to listen to the, to the BBC, and we had these things that uh, leather ottomans really stuffed with newspaper for years. That when we lived in Egypt, they mum and dad must. have bought some there was lying around and they, they sounded great so she would listen to the radio and smoke her one cigarette of the day and have a dubonnet <laughs> uh, and I, I would often i don't know i just started hitting furniture was there any egyptian music was there any of that sort of percussion vibe coming in or no <laughs> well, no i don't think that's so. probably <laughs> awful Awful English pop music or something. But it, it's it's fu- it's funny you're into the shadows because even with with Albatross and with the stuff you did with Danny on Bear Trees, you know, there's this there's, there's the melodic instrumentals were also part of your thing for a long time. Correct, and and I I always uh, let later on and I still haven't been successful, but uh, happily I'm I'm sort of back in contact with Lindsay Buckingham. But yeah, while, yeah, while, yeah, while he was yeah. in the band... The world rejoices. Yeah, you know, while, while he was in the band, I, I said... It's, and it wasn't, like, resistant. We just, we just sadly never did it because he's a great instrumentalist. I just said, it's sort of part of Fleetwood Mac's history, these funny instrumentals of an umbilical that's gone yeah. through our, a lot of our history, in actual fact. Uh, so I, I, I'm still hopeful that that, uh, that part of it... But that... The Shadows, and, and of course, Hank Marvin specifically. Who we've had on the show. 
You did? Yeah, he was fantastic. From, he lives in, in, in Perth. Uh, in Perth. Yeah. And he came to a show and he's just sweet. I went to see The Shadows, their last tour in Australia. We happened to be there. I took the lads, uh, Vito, who's a huge Pank oh, right, yeah. fan, and they were no perfect. They were spectacular. Mm-hmm. Brian Bennett is playing drums with them now, and, right. and Cliff was great, and the whole thing was fantastic. At like twenty thousand people, you go like, it's still happening, unbelievable. Yeah. But the sweetest guy. But but think about the the influence that that he had, and now people oh. look to heroes like Eric and, and Peter and, and Jeff Beck, who's a, a stellar individual, a mm-hmm. total, so unique. The more I listen to Jeff Beck, I go like, wow, I never really understood how unique he yeah. is. He should have been in your band. Yeah, you know, it's just unbelievably outrageous. Well, he's so, kind of like the guitar version of hip-hop in, in that, like, there's nothing he can't take. Danny Boy, Nessum Dorma, you know, anything. <laughs> like a savant or just yeah. whatever. But, but a lot of that and all those players had real reverence for Hank Marvin. Oh, they all yeah. do. Yeah, no, we've, that's the one that's such a constant we found through is that, you know, Hank yeah. is absolute gra- way more than sort of Scotty Moore or any of, you know. Yeah. And, and, and that's that's the influence on on less is more melody. Uh, and of course, Peter hung on to that uh, in no uncertain terms. It won naturally, uh, but it happens to, to reflect on on his regard for Hank and just the, the way he played was so... You're right. I mean, to me, is I think this is why Peter is... I don't want to get into who's better than whom here, but, you know, w- what Peter does is much more melodic than what Eric did. Eric was a different kind of player, you know. He, he, he didn't have the strength of melody. He, he doesn't have that strength of melody and instrumentation that, that Peter had. Well, I, the, the, I, think I, I get what you're saying, and, and, and it's like much of a muchness when you, you're talking about incredible guitar players and I understand that and I, I have a loyalty and a, and a taste reference that I I was born into it through the less is more phrase you know and Peter was an advocate of that and he would he would insist in the nicest possible way and I think that's why he he he, he thought I, I'd be a good candidate to play with because I, I'm really not that clever so he, he was never <laughs> He was never going to be confronted with sort of a repeat of Ainsley Dunbar, who's an incredible drummer, <laughs> but too too clever for what Peter wanted. You but know. one other thing about Peter, which I don't think you hear enough about, is because because he's so revered for the guitar, is his voice, the incredible authority yeah. and maturity, the, and the wisdom that in, in that voice. Unreal. And then you look back, uh, on, well, certainly on the, this whole thing of what we did in London was a reminder, you go, you know, you make jokes, well, what, what was that? Or what was in the water? And, and everyone has their own version of it, you know, from all the bands in Liverpool and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not, nothing exclusive, but something was really, it was amazing that these very young, funny little white guys led by a little Jewish downtrodden kid from mm-hmm. the East End of London ended up doing a really fucking good job at, emulating first of all and then reinterpreting and then channeling uh, something that I still I don't know where it came from but it was real and it has it has left its mark which is really the mark that everyone did walk on that stage 
had been touched by it. I think in, in British music, there's a line that goes as well from sort of the trad jazz and the George Melly and that sort of scene somehow kind of coming together with rock American blues. and But that discipline was kind of cre helping to create the scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever happened to, to Peter, and it's not the same, but I mean, the Rolling Stones, I always, I've had a few sort of in, uh, musical wet dreams where I actually woke up and Charlie had the flu and I was asked to play with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Wouldn't he I let mean, you sit in? <laughs> I love the fact that in music, no matter who you are, you always wish you were the other guy. Like, so, you know, it's like, you know that Mick wakes up now and again and thinks, shit, why wasn't I in the Beatles? You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, no complaints from whence I've come, but... What I was just flashing on on what what happened, say to them, very much a band, you know, you know, thankfully a, a, a real band, mm -hmm. as as we were. And I'm not saying, but you know, there are those bands that that tend to be. They're all about very much about one element that's in the band, you know. And even with Mick there, the the, the fact is, it was the Rolling Stones, you know, and and it. it it, it resonated like that, like Fleetwood Mac. And, and what happened in the same way is they, they're a, a blues band. And then you, you look at their the early writing, which I think has gone unnoticed to a large extent. You know, the Stones, I think, never, in my opinion, never got the real ultimate kudos for being incredible creative songwriters. But if you look at the beginning of it, and, and their albums, it's basically Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and, you know, thing. And then they made that transition, which is what Peter did. But they took, they took all, all of their, their boot camp, their training never left them. It never left them. Like with me and John, although the music changed through Fleetwood Mac, if you quietly are aware, apart from a few things which <clears throat> were atmospherically not very character bound in terms of the rhythm section, but not much. Through the history of Fleetwood Mac, that's been the connect. And having Peter make a quantum leap into starting to write, starting to think on his own, mm -hmm. he never left his training ground. And that's like the Stones, you know, where they just like happen to move on, but you could always find them. You could remember always your remember your training. Remember your training, like, <laughs> how painful it was. <laughs> Mick, you know, a lot, a lot of your success is down to your vision in making choices. There's a moment in your career which is akin to, in my mind, uh, as a fan of it all, of, 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 of Paul meeting John. And it's you being in that studio and Lindsay Buckingham singing through the speakers. And it's a, that is one of the great apexes of rock history that changed so many lives. You've got to talk to us about that moment and how it felt and what went on. Well, yeah, yeah I, uh, I remember it well. Uh, Bob Welch was still with us, who is yet another person, who was a massive part of our history. Yeah. Sadly missed and a dear friend. And... He, he had left the band, but we we ended a tour. And I, I'm surprised he didn't tell me, but I think he just couldn't tell me until the last <laughs> the last gig. He said, "Well, I'm I'm leaving the band," and and he was very unhappy in his personal life. So I I understood, but it was sort of a not a complete shock, but it 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 was a bit of a shock. And I was looking for uh, 
prior to that, looking for a studio when Bob was in the band. And I went up to uh, uh, Laurel Canyon. There's a store, which is still there. with a great documentary about yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it's still there with pictures of Joni Mitchell and Mama Cash on the wall. And I'm woo the day they ripped that place down. And yeah. I've, I've got to, I need to go and film this story there and tell the story because I never did it. And I meant to do it just so this is where it started. And I, I went in there and Jenny and I were up in Laurel Canyon. I went just to get some groceries or something, an old beaten up Cadillac. I met this sort of... Uh, crazy hustler type guy that I vaguely knew. And I said, well, I'm, he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm actually looking for a studio. I've got a couple of weeks off before we end the tour for the next album. And he said, well, I'm, I'm repping an album, a, a studio called Sound City in the Valley. And I'm trying to, so he knew a lot of rock and rollers. So he obviously got himself a job. And right there and then I said, well, I better just get my groceries out the back of this Cadillac because there's no air conditioner. And, and, and the hood never worked, you know, took the, the top. So I shoved all my stuff in the back of his car, and I said, I'll come with you now and take a look at the studio. And that was it. Walked in the studio. Uh, Keith Olsen was there, happened to be there, who, who produced Buckingham Knicks. Stevie and Lindsay happened to be in the studio doing demos for the next album, which ended up being the Fleetwood Mac album, Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac. And... I had no reason apart from the music must have been so in the 20 minutes, half an hour, when we hanging out at the studio, vague recollect from more from Lindsay about sort of met me. And I, I saw Stevie through the window and Keith said, oh, yeah, this is the music. And he happened to put on Buckingham next. And said, this is the music that was I made with this uh, duo. Uh, they're in there doing demos or something. Uh, and he played a tape just for want of something to play, to hear the speakers. And that's what triggered it. I then went back on the road. Bob, uh, after a couple of weeks, then the end, end of the, the tour, said he's leaving. And somehow in that time in the studio, it must have been so profound. And I went, that he was gone. I, and I knew it. I thought, well, what are we going to do? And I remembered the music. And I phoned Keith Olsen up. And I said, you know that music you played me? What, what's the story? Do you think they were, I, even with no rehearsal, we had, they joined Fleetwood Mac with not one note played. I, I just fucking knew it. And I played it to John and Chris, and John says, we're crazy, we've got to like audition them or something. I said, no. And, and they, they ended up agreeing because they heard the album. And I said, I, th I think this is the right thing to do. But wasn't it you just wanted Lindsay, wasn't it? And but the deal was yeah. Stevie had well, to come. I for, yeah, I, I, <laughs> woo the day that Stevie will ever forgive me for... <laughs> and much to... I found out the, the nice part of the story is, even though I get beaten up about it, is that Lindsay made it very clear that no me if Stevie's not there. And, you know, we were looking for a guitar player. And then very quickly... Uh, but she tends to forget it became very apparent that she'd written half the songs, which I was more than well aware of, uh, plus the loyalty from Lindsay with what they were doing. So they transported themselves with what they were about to do into Fleetwood Mac without playing a note. And how did Chrissy feel about it? Because I mean, did she feel a little bit put out having this? This I mean, let's face it, it's a gorgeous, beautiful, talented person coming into the group. Christine... Uh, would tell the stories uh, like this. He said, said, Mick, I think, all joking aside, there's nothing worse than 
two women that can't stand each other, like cat calling. <laughs> so do me a favor, let, let me meet Stevie. Um, we all went out to a Mexican restaurant on Third Street and they got on like a house on fire. And, it, and she wasn't really serious, serious, but she was just saying, let, let me at least meet my fellow lady in the band. And I said, of course. You know. And we went out and it was all, all a go. And they, they became and, and remained great friends through, through a whole load of unbelievable stuff when you look at the history of what unbelievable because you made that album which was a real slow burn wasn't it that's that's the it's kind of happened back everything sort of happened backwards it's like oh there's rumors but then oh no here's all this other stuff but that had sort of happened before and yeah well it was a weird if, couple of years if it? ever there's a broadway show we should <laughs> we should be able to put one on oh my god and it still is you know i i've i've said a couple of things lately and i, I and i don't mind and going let's you know likelihood of it happening you know, in terms of burying, but I, I would like certain hatchets to be buried, and they really exist between Stevie and Lindsay, you know. Uh, so we'll see. Because you're asking divorced people to be created together, aren't you? And that's that's tough. That's what the making of rumors, the, all of us, including uh, Amy's uh, mother, Jenny, uh, we'd broken up, and uh, I was in pieces, and I'm sure she was too. It was a mess. So everyone in, in the band was completely disengaged from their partners while we made rumours. And it's just, it's almost an impossible task. I had Warner Brothers phoning me up going like, just be truthful. <laughs> Tell me when the band's breaking up. I said, no, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And the music took care of that. But like Lindsay said years later, and I, I get it. He said, we were never able to heal. But do you think that's part of the the, the success is because of the amount of pain and honesty that goes into the songs and the relationships between the people playing it is why that, you know, there's something about that album. It's like Dark Side of the Moon. It's entered the popular subconscious in a way that other records just haven't. Do you know what I think it is, Guy? I think because their experiences was going into so deeply into the music that what you hear on the album is utter truth. And, and that somehow that resonates with the wider world, but no matter the, if if you know what's making it happen or not, there's a there's an honesty and a pain in it that makes it real and makes it you know makes it truth. That's what true art is, isn't it? Someone oh, sharing their truth. I I have to agree, and and it's part of the sort of the lot the long story of of Fleetwood Mac, and I, and I I I do like to think that well, I not do like to think I I know that existed. Uh, in in the beginning of of the band with Peter, you know, mm-hmm. and and it the whole thing is is no doubt a survival story which is really beyond belief. We shouldn't have earned the right to survive, really, but uh, we did, and we have, and it's all somehow connected to an honesty that was not planned that ends up with being human and vulnerable and and outside of the music sometimes foolishly so we we revealed way too much with what was really going on in in the subtext of a lot of stuff but we did and sort of paid the price it was very hard to do an interview without talking about who's creeping down the, the corridor and sleeping with each other you know when really we wanted to say well would you like to ask something about the music it was our fault 
We were very overly open about that. However, the end result is it's, it's actually been a plus because people look to the experience of whatever it is uh, under the heading of, of this funny band called Fleetwood Mac is that, that it has, my, my dad would say, like, no matter what, it's been worth a damn. And, and with all of the pain and all of the things where you go, like, sometimes, you know, especially me, but John would go like, should we, should we have kept it going? It's like <clears throat> so much heartache sometimes, but I don't feel that in, in retrospect. I, I think it's all been uh, worth a damn. And it's all, when we walk on a stage, God knows we hope it's about the music and, and, and we believe it is, but there's also something else. And, and I think that, that that became part of our story, which was a problem earlier on, but it is not now. And I think it becomes very meaningful for especially young people to grab onto a body of work that they can really see people as a major subtext to it. There are some bands that just, it's the band, but there's not a super, super emotional, especially what caused it was the, the man and woman, the love and the no love, the dysfunctionality thing was unique. I think it's a, it's akin, it reminds me, in art, it reminds me of the pre-Raphaelites, when, you know, these guys having relationships with each other's muses who were also artists, um, and that all went into their work. Or even, you know, forgive me for being pretentious, but the Bloomsbury set, or, or Shelley and, and, and Byron, you know, and that whole story that surrounds their passion spilling into their work. Well, that, well the Bloomsbury set, the great line about them, which is they lived in squares and loved in triangles. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. But that's what, there is something that you inadvertently left us in and left the, in the, within the history of rock and roll. You left us this incredible tale of human beings we're fascinated by now. Well, I, th I think all the, all the players in the player are actually still fascinated. I'm, I'm certainly one of them. And sometimes, you, unless you start, you know, talking about it as we are now, it, it triggers a whole load of, of things that, you know, often you go like, how did that happen? And then, and then there are explanations of, now I know how it happened. So you flip-flop around, especially when you do talk about it, because we've all kept going forward. But that, again, tying into people ask what, why, what was the driving force about doing the show in London, for instance, for, for Peter and, and for the band and, and the history of the band was before uh, I, I used one of Peter's songs, Before the Beginning, and I, I'm dyslexic, so I probably messed up the real meaning of what I was trying to say. But Before the Beginning, and a lot of people think the beginning of Fleetwood Mac is the rumours incarnation, yeah. understandably, because it, the enormity of it eclipsed everything that, in many ways that came before, uh, understandable. So, but what, what people feel as the beginning there was something before the beginning, which is is this whole thing we did in London, of and then the the longer the journey and before it really ends, which you know we know it's going to end, we're all getting on anyhow. But the band, I, I thought, before it really stops, how about reminding what happened at the beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, this will never happen, and 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 that that was really apart from. Uh, letting people know that a lot of people think that me and John or maybe me started the band and the name and all that stuff. 
And it's not, it's Peter started this band and Peter started the story that I wanted to be a, a line in the sand just as a document that he could give a damn about it. You know, he's, he's moved on now anyhow, but I, I, I wanted someone to give a damn. Nick, was there a part of you guys creatively after rumours going forward where you felt we need to create personal chaos to make our best record? <laughs> no, it was a completely accidental mess. <laughs> but you did go on and make that because I remember at the time the really big deal because was that um, for being a you know nerdy young muso as I was was that uh, the Tusk was the first ever digitally recorded album. I never knew that. Well, I don't think it was. I, I think, think it was. Uh, uh, it's not for your record company. Don't fall out. Let's make an album. <laughs> I I think the first digital album uh, in our world would uh, the side player. Uh, uh, oh, what's his name? He made uh, that lovely album in Cuba. Oh uh, no, Raikuda. No, Raikuda. He, his was the first CD. I think. I think you did the first digital recording. Okay. I saw you guys with Neil Finn at Wembley year before last, I think it was. And he's great. He's a beautiful player. Absolutely love him. And, you know, I think this is the other, you know, you obviously know exactly who to choose, who works for you. But I think we all wanted Lindsay back. I mean, what, what's, what's the future there? Well, I don't think there's much of a future, but I, I do know uh, in my world that I visualise, and, and we spoke very loosely about it. He said, oh, I'd love to come up come out and play, have a play with you. And, and I, I think that that I like to think would happen. And, and I think my whole thing would be that the band stays as, as it is. And I, I just think it's a pipe dream for sure. But the thought of uh, walking on the stage and having Lindsay be part of that performance, I think would be very healing. That's mm. uh, not saying goodbye to Mike or, or to Neil. And, you know, we don't behave like that, but it, Something, something connective. So, the second, well, not second best, but an, another alternative. You know, I believe that that me and Lindsay will will make some music together, uh, as he did with Christine and and so forth. Mm -hmm. I would love that, and no matter what, you know, umbraged feelings that aren't healed uh, for all their own personal reasons. Uh, I would like to be uh, sort of the uh, instigator of the hope that that would happen before we all knock it on the head. Well, I think the world would like that too. No, I know they would. And, and it's, it's, it almost makes me cry. Mick, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Likewise. And uh, fantastic talking to you. And, and a lot of lovely connective stuff uh, directly with my family, which was really wild considering... Yeah. It's been so, uh, your, both your comments were just literally fresh off my, my conversation. So that, that, that was a really nice entree to this conversation. Lots of love. That was a spiritual experience, wasn't it? It was, it was really moving, actually, yeah. especially at the end. You know, um, you know, I think I forgot that we were doing the rock on tours, you know? Yeah. So at times when we've done this in the past, you you're thinking all the time, I've got to ask this question, I've got to ask that. It became a very fluid chat with him where, you know, there's so much you have to deal with, with, with in the history of Fleetwood Mac that really we, you've just got to find a couple of key moments and just see what 
because he's in there. But it was beautiful. It just it, it was. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it sounds. It just felt kind of sacred. I don't know. It was really, really special talking to him. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. Um, very, we're very honoured to be in this job, and I'm glad we're doing it. Uh, I um It's going to be a hard one to beat, though. Yeah, it Nick really Fleet, is. Woody's yeah. going to be hard to beat. Um, anyway, listen. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, please keep uh, sending us those messages. Everything you send us on social media is really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, keep up with the reviews. Thanks to Ben, our producer. And, uh, yeah, if you enjoyed that one a hundredth of as much as we did, then it's an hour well spent. So it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 